sitting groups, such as this one, is basically we do a 45-minute sit. And since there are a few beginners, I'm, I'll do um, uh, detailed instructions. And um, then we do a little walking or movement. I think we have enough room to do walking, so we'll do some walking meditation. And then um, some Dharma discussion among us, see, what, see what's up with you. So, just to, Deirdre, the, this is blinking, so I don't know if that means that the battery is. that those effects are certainly true and or or certainly potential potentially they're true and yet when we practice it in the context of um of buddhist practice uh the it's um it's a little bit more profound than that uh that its meditation is three parts of the eightfold path, which is the basic path that the Buddha laid down for our journey from suffering to freedom. So there's absolutely nothing wrong with meditating for um, relieving stress, but I worry um, about the, uh, the the cultural take that's on it, because I worry about people being shortchanged in their aspiration for practicing meditation. And that's not to say that um, coming for stress reduction is is a problem. It's not a problem. But I just invite you to um, contemplate for a moment the difficulty of life. And we were talking about this before, Alicia and Dalila and I, about how the, um, the world sometimes makes us feel as if we've, we're somehow um, falling short because sometimes the portrait of life can be so ideal, as if there's some way that we should be always happy and fulfilled and um, generous and kind and loving. And, and uh, I was telling them that uh, I went to a, a funeral of a student of mine who's son died suddenly, His 20, her 29-year-old son died on a train from New York to Westchester, and they still don't know why. And as a student of Buddhism, she said to me, I know I'm too attached to my son. And I said, no, that's not a, it's not a problem that we're attached. So as a mother and her child, of course we are, we love people, we want 
them to be happy and we are unhappy when they're not. So the, it's not the attachment that's so much a problem as it is the suffering that may come from wanting to, things to be different than they are. So our meditation practice becomes more and more profound as we, um, as we continue the practice and as we um, commit to it. In the beginning, it may feel as if when we listen to the instructions that they are so simple that we should be instantly perfect at it. And yet what we'll find is that when we start to practice, it feels like a struggle. It doesn't feel like we're getting stress reduction. It feels like we're building up more stress because we're trying to do this thing and we, can, we seem to not be able to do it. Don't worry about that. Um, the practice is like every other um, discipline in that when we start out, our muscles are weak. Uh, we have to learn to find our ground as we learn something new. We learn uh, not only what works, but what doesn't work. And for us to learn what doesn't work, it means that we have um, obstacles. And part of building muscles in any discipline is that we learn how to overcome those obstacles. But of course, first they present themselves. So I will give you instructions that, um, that appear to be quite simple. And, uh, the, it, and it certainly is in the description of the instructions, but in the execution may not be so simple. So I give you that as a gift, really so that you will not feel defeated if you feel as if um, it's something you can't do or your mind is too busy or, you know, I've heard that from many students, my mind is so busy I can't meditate. Well, um, what we learn how to do is to meditate with the busy mind rather than trying to get rid of it. So I'll start with some very simple instructions about our posture and then move to the actual... So I know that um, if you've not done walking meditation before, that it can feel a little odd. <laughs> You know, we look like the night of the walking dead, right? Um, but it's a, it's a really great practice because it helps us to, um, to bring our meditation into our life and to not feel as if, uh, you know, we have to have a cushion or a chair and be sitting in a particular place, but that our meditation can be actually, even when we're in activity, that the ability, training the mind to be present and to actually know what is happening as it is happening and to be present and aware for all, for our uh, sensations, our bodies, our minds, our hearts, our emotions, our thoughts, that present moment awareness brings us back into occupying our lives fully 
And so walking meditation can be a really great bridge into that. So I'd started by um, talking about uh, the meditation practice in our culture. And um, I'm always moved by the students that I have, that, I've, that I see uh, privately and personally. And a lot of the time by knowing some of you who, come, who have been coming to New York Insight for quite a while and seeing the progress that people make. And when I say progress, I don't mean it in the same sense of progress as we do in school or in conventional ways. What I mean by progress is a deepening of understanding of what this life, this human life, really is. And what it means to live a life that is uh, awake. And I use the word awake because it's a Buddhist term of art. But it's also because there are so many um, elements in our culture that appear to be begging us to sleepwalk through life. With the uh, invention of the technology that seems to be so much a part of our life and our culture and our way of way of being, we, we have, we've been turning over our time and our energy and our connectedness to, in many ways, some very trivial pursuits. And it's not that I'm a Luddite and I think that technology is a terrible thing and that, you know, we shouldn't have it. It clearly can be a wonderful servant. But I think that what's happened is it's really become our masters. And I've certainly noticed it in my own life that, you know, the emails and the texts and, you know, the, the opportunities. And I, and I notice when I go online, for instance, to open up my email, that my mind wants to be so distracted all the time by whatever it is that's on the screen, right? It's like this, you know, there's a picture of, there's one particular ubiquitous picture of this woman who's really wrinkled, right? Her face is very wrinkled. And, it, and there's some headline about how um, she got revenge on her husband who divorced her by getting plastic surgery. And I feel, I feel this 
instinct to want to click on it and see the story, right? Just want to see. I want to see. I want to see what happened to that face. And that happens like hundreds of times during the day when I go to the internet or you know for whatever it is I I think I need. Um, I feel all and you know and and the the constant um, barrage of Donald Trump news. You know, like, what did he do next? What did he just say? What did he, you know, how did he blow himself up? Oh, my God. That's, you know. And, and it takes a tremendous amount of willpower, in a way, to do what I went online to do in the first place. And I'm not always successful. So we're... So we're in a culture where we are constantly being invited to be distracted. And, and it's very tempting because much of the time, life can be really difficult. And here we are, a, a group of people of color, and we know that over these last few years, the conversation about color in America has ramped up, right? And so not only are we having to live our normal human lives with its vicissitudes and its joys, but we're also engaged in a very deep conversation about what it means to be of color in America. And it feels almost like an added burden. And yet it's unavoidable because it's a really important conversation. And it's a really important conversation in the sense that for many for many years previous to these iPhone recordings the conversation was non-existent we were a culture really in large part in denial about uh, color in America And we are now also faced with a political landscape that feels very dangerous. And that feels like an added burden also. So I think our question is, as practitioners, and I know some of you are new to the practice, so you may not think of yourself yet as a practitioner, But as someone who is interested in finding a way to peace in this life, that being of color in America feels like an added added dimension that sometimes at least for me, it feels like I'd rather not have it. Like I just want to live my life. 
I just want to be a human being, being in uh, the normal ups and downs of life, the blessings, the joys, the sorrows, the vicissitudes of life, being able to meet them without this added dimension. And yet, in so many ways, this added dimension is what offers us the path to peace. And that may feel like an oxymoron because everything in our experience, everything in our bodies, everything in our minds, everything in the external world tells us that peace is not yet completely possible. Because we're not only dealing with our internal apparatus and all of the things that come with being a human being internally, but we're also dealing with the external pressures that come in this particular American culture of this particular century in this particular time. And we won't even get into what's happening globally, but just even coping with what is happening here. Yet the, the, the teachings that we have received that have come from 2,600 years ago that bring us to this place and bring us into this practice together essentially acknowledges everything that I've said, certainly in, different, in a different um, uh, vernacular and in a different uh, perhaps a different internal structure, but essentially acknowledges it exactly and precisely. And it acknowledges it through the basic teaching of the Buddha, which is called the Four Noble Truths. And for those of you who've not heard these Four Noble Truths before, it's the central teaching from which all of the other teachings spring. And the first truth is there is unsatisfactoriness. There is dukkha, it's called in Pali, or sometimes uh, translated, I, I, I think, a bit misleadingly as suffering, but good enough for now. And when I first heard this teaching, I went, Oh, thank God somebody has finally acknowledged it, right? Because all of the images that we have about life, and again, we were talking about this before, is, are these kind of perfect representations of, you know, what it means to be a human being. That you've got the nice nuclear family with a girl and a boy and a father and a mother, and they've got two cars, nice clothes, things to eat, nice place to live, good jobs, everything's great. 
And that if that's not the picture of your life, somehow you've screwed up. So, so the acknowledgement that there is actually this difficulty, unsatisfactoriness, something off, something not quite right. And in the teachings, the way um, this dukkha or unsatisfactoriness, is the, the, the metaphor for it is that it's like a, a, a wheel with a hub and the, 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 the axle of the wheel doesn't quite, so you have like a round axle and a square hub, or something where the, the, the axle doesn't quite fit into the hub, so you get a bumpy ride, because of course in those days we didn't have asphalt, right? So, you know, you were in a cart, and that cart would give you a really bumpy ride. So the first thing the Buddha said is life is a bumpy ride, right? I don't know if any of you agree with that, but I, I've noticed in my own life it's quite bumpy. But he doesn't stop there. He says there's a reason for that. There's a, there's a cause of this unsatisfactoriness, this dukkha, this imperfection. And he puts it back on us. And he says... Uh, there's, a, there's, a kind, there's a way in which we relate to difficulty, the way in which we relate to the world that causes this unsatisfactoriness. And he essentially says that cause is the clinging mind, the mind that wants things to be other than they are the mind that grasps onto things that are pleasant, that can never, ever be permanent. That all, of, that all phenomena are impermanent, and yet when we find something that we like or we want or we think is the answer, we want it to stay. And that causes rubbing, it causes suffering. Or if we find something that's unsatisfactory, that's not so pleasant, we want to push it away, we want it to get rid of it, we want to get rid of it, we want to destroy it, we want it out of our lives, we want it away from here, we want it gone. And that, given the nature of life, even if you get that particular thing gone, there's going to be more unpleasantness coming. So good luck with that. And then he says if we find that it's neither pleasant nor unpleasant, we kind of fall asleep. We just like zone out because it doesn't have a charge, so we just don't want to be bothered. So if you, if you just take that second noble truth, the cause of suffering or the cause of dukkha, what you realize is that we're constantly chasing something that never quite 
makes it. That, that axle never quite fits into the hub. And even if, we, if it does for a moment, it's going to slip out again. And that if we keep thinking that somehow we're going to figure it out, we're going to make it happen so that it's permanent, we're really lost because nothing is permanent in this world. This world is constantly changing. Everything is moving, shifting, going away and coming in. The tides move, the moon moves, everything moves. Everything moves in the sky, on the land, in the sea. Nothing stays the same. And so we're constantly trying to freeze what is forever flowing, thinking that that's what's going to make us happy. So that's a pretty bleak picture, right? <laughs> and then the third truth, he says, is we can actually be free from it. We can be free. There is freedom. And then he, the fourth truth is he lays out a path. And that path includes meditation, living in a way of integrity, and training our minds into wisdom. So that's a, that's a really short summary of the teachings of the Buddha. And we, we can't stop there. What we need to do, what we need to understand about it, is that it's a constant process. That any idea that we're suddenly going to figure out life, that we're going to figure it out, that we're going to suddenly solve what needs to be solved, that, every, that someday we will reach that place where it all kind of stops, and it stops in that tiny little point of perfection, because if, if you look at life and you look at all of the times when you've actually come to rest, it's not been so much because the external circumstances or even the internal circumstances became perfect, but that there was a moment at which the heart actually came to rest. And it came to rest because it was not struggling with the way things are. Now, this is a pretty radical idea, right? And it's a radical idea because all of our lives we've been struggling. And all of our lives, we've been, the, the, the results of that struggle have not brought us to that place of perfection. And the, so the central idea was there was something wrong with us because we couldn't find that place of perfection. I was in England about uh, a couple of weeks ago with my uh, stepdaughter and grandson and granddaughter. And they were taking me back to the airport to Heathrow. And we were in, we were in pretty good traffic and then suddenly it kind of started to slow down. And my nine-year-old grandson 
who was watching his mother's navigation system telling us what time we were going to get to the airport, started to see that the time was getting later and later and later on the clock, right? And he was getting more and more and more and more frustrated because he, he, he wanted to get home really fast, right? Well, you know, good luck with that because traffic and London and all of that. And I said to him, hey, Sebastian, do you know what adversity is? And he said, huh? And I said, well, adversity is when you're not getting what you want or you're getting what you don't want. And right now you're getting a late arrival at the airport and you're not getting to get home as quickly as you'd like to get back home. This is adversity. Welcome to life, my nine-year-old friend. And I said, this moment that you have right now with this navigation system moving the time later and later and later is a really wonderful opportunity. And he said, no, it isn't. I said, yes, it is. It's a wonderful opportunity to begin your life really understanding what it means to be in adverse circumstances and how it's possible to not be unhappy in those adverse circumstances, to not suffer. And he said, how is that? That's not possible. He said, because I really want, I really want to get home soon and that's not going to happen. <laughs> and I said, so, so your mind is now telling you that you should be unhappy because you're not getting what you want. But what if your mind were saying to you, the sun is out, it's England and the sun is actually out. We're together. We're, ha- we're enjoying a little bit longer in the car together. And actually, no matter how much you worry about it, we're going to get there when we get there. So what would it be like if you didn't uh, resist uh, this later arrival, but you actually accepted it just as it is, and we enjoyed each other, and we sang some songs, and we did whatever we needed to do to, to occupy the time so that when I leave, you will have a really good memory of how we, how we got to the airport. Could you actually do that? And he said, no, I don't think so. <laughs> I said, okay, well, let's try it anyway. And so we, we did. But it was, you know, I, I was really happy to have that conversation with him because I figured that he wouldn't have an, any idea of what I was talking about but that sometime in his life, he would remember this conversation. And I think that the practice of meditation is actually constantly reminding us of that conversation. That each time we move back from, from having been gone away for minutes or hours from the present moment and we realize it, every time we come back, in that moment, we're actually being um, 
reminded of what it's like to lose it and to regain it. That our equanimity, our ability to be with, situ- with the circumstances of life, our, the, that muscle for that is being trained every single time we sit down to meditate, to be present for all of the circumstances of our life. And we can sit in a room meditating and, you know, the cars are honking or it's too hot or it's too cold or it's too this or it's too that. And we can either be agitated by that or we can actually consciously and with awareness know exactly what it's like to be with the conditions that have arisen and to not waver with those conditions. And I think with, as people of color, that becomes even more and more and more important because I think the heat is going to get ramped up. It's going to get ramped up. It's so, you know, with what's just happened in Milwaukee and all of the ways in which um, the temperature keeps rising with respect to this conversation that's happening in the country about people of color, that we are even more in need of ways to open the valve, the pressure valve, so that we are actually able to Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.